This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. U.S.-China relations take center stage on Capitol Hill. We may call this a strategic competition, but it's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken presses his Russian counterpart on the sidelines of the G20. Plus, how to make mandatory fun at work better for everyone. It's Thursday, March 2nd. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. This is the PM edition of What's News, the top headlines and business stories that moved the world today. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, for the first time since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The unscheduled 10-minute conversation occurred on the sidelines of the Group of 20 Leading Economies meeting in India. A senior State Department official said the purpose was to deliver three key messages, to urge Russia to rejoin the New START nuclear arms treaty, to pressure Moscow for the release of ex-U.S. Marine Paul Whelan from detention, and to stress the continuing support by the U.S. and its allies for Ukraine quote, for as long as it takes. A spokeswoman for the Russian foreign ministry said the two diplomats spoke briefly at the request of the U.S. and that there were neither talks nor a meeting. That's according to Russian state media agency TASS. North Korea is facing one of the worst food crises in decades, with people suffering widespread hunger and even dying of starvation. That's according to South Korea's Unification Ministry. The food shortages come as a result of the country's international isolation and natural disasters that have damaged crops. The country's regime held an urgent meeting on agriculture and the economy this week, a rare occurrence and a sign of just how serious the food shortages are, according to officials in South Korea. North Korea has rejected humanitarian assistance from the U.S. and South Korea. Protesters in Greece took to the streets today demanding that the government take responsibility for a head-on collision between a passenger train and a freight train this week that killed at least 57 people. Protesters and labor unions say a lack of technology, poor maintenance, and staff shortages are to blame. Wall Street Journal editor Christina Roca is following the events and says demonstrators are asking for accountability. People are angry. Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis said the day after the crash that it looked like this was mainly down to human error. And he's gotten criticism for how quick he was to come to this conclusion and blame this on human error. And I think what people are asking for is a fuller reckoning and sort of a recognition that the rail network has been neglected over the years, that this this is an issue that goes back a long time and that there's political responsibility. The entire managing board of Greece's rail network operator, Osei, and a subsidiary resigned after the crash. Osei said there were no safety systems operating where the crash happened. 
Diagnoses and death rates from colorectal cancer are declining. But younger Americans account for a growing share of new cases, according to the American Cancer Society. In 2019, about 20 percent of new diagnoses were in patients under the age of 55. That's nearly twice the proportion seen in 1995. And a growing share of cases are being diagnosed at advanced stages. So what explains the new worrying trend? Health reporter Brianna Abbott says oncologists aren't sure. Researchers don't quite know why rates of colorectal cancers are increasing in younger people. There are some common risk factors for colorectal cancer that we already know about, and some of those include unhealthy diets that are low in fruits and vegetables, limited exercise, alcohol consumption, excess weight is another one. But I, I've also had some doctors say that they have young patients coming in that, that live a really healthy lifestyle, so that doesn't seem to fully explain what's going on here. Colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancer types in the U.S. and the second deadliest behind lung cancer, commonly affecting people between the ages of 65 and 74. However, American Cancer Society's CEO Karen Knutson says people with a family history of the diseases or other risk factors should talk with their health provider before the age of 45. And U.S. shoppers are starting to pull back on spending on items like clothes and electronics and spending their money instead on necessities like groceries. Retailers like Macy's and Best Buy reported a decline in sales in the fourth quarter of last year, while supermarket Kroger reported an increase in same-store sales, excluding fuel. Retail analysts and executives say discretionary spending has taken a hit amid high inflation and shifts in the labor market. Coming up, U.S.-China relations dominated conversations on Capitol Hill this week. We'll have more details from Washington after the break. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Beijing took center stage on the Hill this week as a new House committee focused on competition with China held its first hearing. Committee Chair Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin, described what's at stake in his view. We may call this a strategic competition, but it's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. That hearing on Tuesday was part of a trend toward a more hawkish U.S. position on China. Our D.C. reporter Daniela Cheslow has been following this trend in Washington, and she joins me now with more. Hi, Daniela. Welcome back. Hello, Anne-Marie. So, Daniela, start by walking us through some of what you heard this week in the Capitol. 
Sure. That clip you played up top is from the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the U.S. and the Chinese Communist Party. That's a mouthful. It's a new body in Congress, and it's a rare place where Republicans who just took the House majority are finding common ground with Democrats. For instance, after we heard Congressman Gallagher speak about an existential struggle, the ranking Democrat, Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois, had this to say about the People's Republic of China, or PRC. We do not want a war with the PRC. Not a cold war, not a hot war. We don't want a clash of civilizations, but we seek a durable peace. And that is why we have to deter aggression. The committee's first hearing was at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, but it came after a full day of China on the Hill. The same day at 10 a.m., the House Foreign Affairs Committee discussed the Chinese Communist Party's, quote, aggression. It also took up a bill that could ban the Chinese TikTok app in the U.S. The House Science Committee took on the U.S.-China fight for global leadership. The Senate introduced a bill to review agricultural transactions that involve China. So, Anne-Marie, you could see the challenge of China taking front and center across many, many domains. Right, a pretty broad array here, but this seems like a bit of a shift in a way. How is this tenor different from what we've heard before regarding the U.S. and China? In some ways, the rivalry between the U.S. and China is not new. Of course, we saw former President Donald Trump impose new tariffs on Chinese goods, and the Biden administration is making moves to promote American semiconductor and electric vehicle production. But I spoke to analysts who say the tone of the debate is changing. Here's Anna Ashton. She's a director on the China team at the Eurasia Group. It's a private risk consulting firm in D.C. The fact that we're hearing concerns out of the White House, as well as concerns on primetime television from the Republican-controlled House, illustrates that this is, at least to some extent, in reality, a Washington consensus. And the breadth of the issues is changing, too. We're seeing figures from that new China committee also show up at rallies by Chinese democracy activists and at a roundtable for Chinese dissidents and the persecuted Muslim minority Uyghurs. Okay, so a lot of rhetoric here on many issues, but what are the concrete proposals we might see coming down the pike? Well, there are a number of angles to look at, both economic and military. On the economic front, analysts are saying to look out for new scrutiny of outgoing U.S. investments in China. Wendy Cutler is vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute, and she's a former U.S. government trade negotiator. She told me she expects to see an executive order within weeks that would impose screening on American companies and individuals investing in China. The scope of that order is still not clear. Will this just cover, you know, manufacturing investment or will this include financial investments? I mean, potentially it could really impact venture capitalists who are sending money to China to fund startups. But it also could affect manufacturing companies that are looking to either establish or expand operations in China, including everything from autos to consumer goods. One area analysts say seems to definitely be in the crosshairs is quantum computing. But my colleagues who cover the White House and Treasury still haven't gotten the details. And let's not forget just how titanic U.S.-China trade is. The total trade between the two countries reached $690.6 billion last year, and that's a record. Okay, now let's get into another big one here, the military side of the U.S.-China tensions. At The Journal, we've been reporting on new U.S. approvals for the sale of missiles to Taiwan. How does that fit into the broader U.S. military position toward China? 
Yeah, our colleague Doug Cameron reported that the State Department approved a sale of $619 million worth in missiles to Taiwan. These would arm a new U.S.-made F-16 fighter jet that Taiwan's expecting to get by the middle of this decade. And I think we're seeing here that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is raising fears China might launch an attack in Taiwan. That's the democratic island under Chinese military pressure. So shoring up Taiwan's defense has become a more pressing U.S. priority. Chairman Gallagher of the New House Committee recently spent four days in Taiwan meeting with top government and security officials there. And our colleagues Nancy Youssef and Gordon Lubald have reported the U.S. is quadrupling its troop presence to between 100 and 200 personnel in Taiwan. Bonnie Glazer is a China policy expert in D.C. She's managing director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. She just returned from a trip of her own to Taipei, and she told me that after Taiwan extended its draft from four months to a year, the U.S. is trying to help. The top-down efforts the U.S. is very much involved in. For example, uh, discussions that have taken place between the United States and Taiwan about how to make the training for conscripted soldiers that will be now one year long more effective so that they can learn more. And let's also remember that the U.S. is closely watching China's relationship with Moscow. China's leader Xi Jinping just hosted the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko. He's a key ally of Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. So far, China has not given lethal military aid to Russia, but the U.S. says Beijing is considering it. And this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned that if China supplies lethal weapons to Russia, the U.S. is prepared to lay sanctions on Chinese companies and people. So what have we heard from China about all of this? In a reaction that would surprise no one, uh, China is not happy about this new committee. Officials in Beijing have accused the U.S. of a, quote, zero-sum Cold War mentality. That's according to the Associated Press. And Beijing has also called the allegation that it might help Moscow, quote, disinformation. But this is a pretty strained time. Remember, just last month, Blinken was scheduled to visit Beijing, and that trip was scrapped at the last minute after the U.S. shot down what it said was a Chinese surveillance balloon. The analysts I spoke to in Washington say what we're seeing now, especially this week, is the culmination of a move toward a decoupling with China. And Wendy Cutler, the former U.S. government trade negotiator, said the heyday of China being the supply chain hub for the U.S. is behind us. Wall Street Journal DC reporter Daniela Cheslow bringing us the latest from the talk on Capitol Hill. Daniela, thank you so much. Thank you, Anne-Marie. And finally, thinking about saying no to those after-work drinks or a team-building event on a Saturday, it's often referred to as mandatory fun. Erin Delmore hosts the Journal's As We Work podcast, and their latest episode is all about those work events outside of work hours. Hey, Erin, welcome to What's News. Hey, Emery, Thanks. So, Erin, I think we've all been to one of these events or more, which can really run the gamut, right? Totally. We're talking about everything from happy hours to karaoke to bowling. It could be a company-wide holiday party or any event that just says, job well done. But the key elements are it's a work outing with work people that's not done during your work time. It's on your own time. That's key. So that's something that some employees might object to. But experts you spoke to said it can actually be good for your career to engage in this mandatory fun. Here's management professor Adam Waits from Northwestern University. We know about 
the power of social networking. Networking is how you make things happen. It's essential to career success. What do you do with this information? You kind of have to convince yourself that you're willing to be social. Another way of putting it, I say, is you don't have to be an extrovert, but you at least have to like people. So during this interview, Adam Waits dished out a little bit of tough love for those of us who needed to hear it. The idea that you really do have to try to go. But here's his recipe for making mandatory fun work really well. He wants to keep it mandatory because he wants to take that onus off workers who decide whether or not they're going to go. And he wants to keep it during work hours because that levels the playing field. It allows everybody to go no matter what your commitments are before or after work. And he says that's key, right? Make it even for everybody to participate. Well, what about making mandatory fun fun for employers and employees? I loved this one example that Adam gave us. He said at his last work event, the food was really good. That was the whole thing. And this goes straight into his best tips for how to make this work for companies and for workers. Try to do one thing well. It can be a small thing. Don't get too fancy. And make sure that it appeals to a broader group. Remember, that open bar isn't going to be for everybody. And be intentional. If you're trying to do it as a reward or a team-building activity, make sure that you're making people feel appreciated or fostering connection. Get to the heart of what you want to be doing. You can hear more about Mandatory Fun on this week's episode of the As We Work podcast. I've been speaking with host Aaron Delmore. Aaron, I'd love to go karaokeing with you if it's Mandatory Fun. Oh, Anne-Marie, you're on. <laughs> Thanks so much, Aaron. Seriously, Friday? Let's do it. All right, I'm going to throw down some Shania Twain. <laughs> and that's what's news for this Thursday afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow morning. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal.